Welcome to MD Notified, a pediatrics podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Christine Supchuk, and today we're going to be talking about the many faces of group B strep. Group B strep is a super important topic for both pediatricians and OBGYNs because it's a major cause of perinatal infections. We know that group B strep is a colonizing bacteria in many mothers, and it's not super pathogenic in the adult population, but in neonates and in infants, it can cause some very severe disease, and it can lead to pretty significant morbidity and sometimes mortality in our patients. So this is definitely something we want to have a very, very good grasp on. Groupie strep, as we know, it's a gram-positive cocci. It's a strep species, um, and transmission usually occurs via vertical transmission, so that would be during delivery. Less commonly, it can be transmitted from contact. So it is pretty interesting, but um, most of our cases are transferred vertically, and for that reason, a lot of the focus on prevention of groupie strep is uh, focused around the birthing process. And that is where our OBGYN colleagues come into play. They are the ones who are managing the mothers during the delivery process, and they do a really good job of making sure that they get intrapartum antibiotics if they are indicated. We will go ahead and talk a little bit about when those are indicated. That is something that, again, is mostly up to the OBGYN, but it is important as you'll see a little bit later in our discussion, for us as pediatricians to be able to recognize which mothers receive adequate GBS prophylaxis during their delivery and which ones received inadequate GBS prophylaxis during their delivery. So pregnant mothers receive GBS testing at between 36 and 38 weeks gestation So you could be 36 weeks or you could be 37 weeks and six days. As long as you are prior to the 38th week, that's the recommended window when we want you to get swabbed. If you are GBS positive at that swab, then at the time of delivery, it is recommended that the mother have intrapartum antibiotics given to protect the infant from potential GBS disease. If for some reason that swab doesn't get done, or if you have a mother who did not receive prenatal care, or for some reason the GBS status is unknown, um, we do still sometimes give antibiotics intrapartum, and we give them in in more high-risk mothers. And so those would be people who are going into preterm labor. Let's say they're going uh, into labor at 34 weeks, and even though they had routine prenatal care, they never quite made it to that 36-week mark and so they never had GBS testing done. That person would be high risk for GBS disease because they're going into preterm labor, and preterm labor is an independent risk factor for sepsis in our neonates. So that mother would receive intrapartum antibiotics. Also, if the mother is GBS unknown and has had prolonged rupture of membranes, defined as over 18 hours, that mother will receive intrapartum antibiotics as well. Lastly, if you have a mother who has a fever during the delivery, that's defined as a temperature over 38 degrees Celsius, that mother would also receive intrapartum antibiotics as groupie strep prophylaxis. 
So I've been saying antibiotics, antibiotics, and the question is what antibiotics do we give to these moms during delivery to try and prevent group B strep disease in our infants? And the answer to that is in most cases, we try to give ampicillin or penicillin G. Those are our two preferred antibiotics. However, we know that not everyone can get ampicillin or penicillin G. If we have a mother who has a penicillin allergy and is low risk for anaphylaxis, then we'll give cefazolin as an alternative antibiotic. Uh, the brand name for that is Ancef. Or if we have a mother who is allergic to penicillin and at high risk for anaphylaxis, let's say she's anaphylaxed to penicillin in the past, that is a mother that we would give clindamycin as an alternative antibiotic. We consider mothers to have received adequate prophylaxis if they've received their antibiotics four hours prior to delivery or more. So if you have a mom who comes in and she's group B strep positive and she gets a dose of ampicillin, but then 30 minutes later she delivers her infant, that would be inadequate prophylaxis because there was not that four-hour time frame between when she got the antibiotic and when the infant was born. One question that comes up fairly frequently is, can group B strep disease occur in infants whose mothers screened negative for group B strep? And the answer to that is yes, absolutely it can. And there's a couple reasons that that could happen. One is just swab error. So if we didn't get a good sample on that swab collection that occurred at between 36 and 38 weeks gestation, then maybe it was a false negative. Also, it could be a lab issue or simply a change in group B strep status between the time that the mother was swabbed and the time that the infant was born. If you think about a mom who comes in at 36 weeks gestation, she's group B strep negative. Well, she has you know, let's say four weeks before she delivers at 40 weeks. And in that time, she could have environmental changes or exposures that lead her to develop a group B strep colonization at the time of delivery. So yes, infants can have group B strep disease develop even if their mother screened negative for group B strep during pregnancy. The other consideration too would be, did the infant get it not vertically, um, but from contact with family members after the delivery. And unfortunately, in those situations, we really don't know how the infant got the group B strep disease, um, but those are just kind of some explanations for why you might encounter a group B strep negative mother with a group B strep positive infant. Now, the next question for us as pediatricians would be, how do we manage these babies who are at high risk for group B strep disease in the newborn nursery or in the NICU? Who gets antibiotics? Who doesn't get antibiotics? Who gets a sepsis screen? Who just gets observed? And honestly, the answer to that question is kind of complicated, and it requires a little bit of a backstory. So in 2010, the CDC came out with a guideline for how we as pediatricians should manage these babies. Um, and it took into account things like the time that the membranes were ruptured, if the mother had an interpartum fever, if the mother was in preterm labor, as well as factors such as how the infant was clinically appearing. 
And then in 2019, the AAP, in collaboration with ACOG, came out with a new guideline, which is what we're currently using. And it basically took three of the more common approaches to managing these infants and said, you can use any three of these approaches. They're all correct, but the standard of care would be to pick one at your institution and do it kind of regularly. So so there is no standard way that we manage these kids across the nation, uh, but most institutions will have a policy or will have a, an algorithm loosely based or just directly based on these AAP guidelines. So I'll give you a quick rundown of the three main approaches that were mentioned in the AAP guideline from 2019, and then you can kind of personally decide based on what's going on at your institution, what the policy is there, and your personal preference, sort of which one you'd rather use. Two of these approaches are kind of algorithms based on both neonatal and maternal risk factors. So I'll go through one um, just briefly so that you can kind of get an idea for what this sort of looks like. So the first risk assessment method is um, if the infant is ill-appearing at all, then they would get a sepsis screen, a blood culture, and start on, on empiric antibiotics. And remember, when we talk about being ill-appearing or septic-appearing in the neonatal period, that typically looks like infants who are having respiratory distress or infants who are having difficulty feeding, not latching. And so if you have any of those findings in conjunction with something like a fever, then of course you would go ahead and get a sepsis screen, cultures, and um, start empiric antibiotics on that baby. The next criteria is if they have a maternal fever, automatically that would default to sepsis screen, cultures, and antibiotics. If mom was GBS positive, but the mother received adequate prophylaxis, meaning antibiotics were administered four hours prior to delivery, then at that point we would just recommend routine care. And then lastly, if the mother was inadequately prophylaxed, um, but the infant was well appearing clinically, then you would just proceed with routine care and try to observe that baby for at least 36 to 48 hours to see if that infant is going to develop signs and symptoms of sepsis. So that's kind of a sample of one of the risk assessment tools. And then another option for the management of these infants, which I think is a little bit easier, is to use the Kaiser Neonatal Sepsis Calculator. This is a calculator that's available online, and essentially you plug in different data points about your infant, those being things like gestational age, whether there was a maternal fever, how long were the membranes ruptured, things like that. And then the calculator uses a mathematical algorithm to place the infant in a low, medium, or high-risk category for GBS disease. And then as a clinician, you can take that risk assessment or that um, category that you're given, low, medium, or high, and then you can make a judgment. And I think the calculator also gives you suggestions on whether you should do just a sepsis screen or whether you should observe the infant or whether you should go ahead and order a sepsis screen cultures and antibiotics empirically. So I think that's kind of a long answer to the question of how do we manage these infants in the nursery, but really there's no cut and dry 
answer that is going to be applicable to all institutions across the United States. It's a little bit institution dependent, and according to the AAP guideline, there's three different ways that you could manage this, and as long as you pick one method and you stick to it, then that is correct. The story is a little bit different, though, for our premature infants. Really, with premature infants, it gets a little bit tricky to observe them clinically because, as we know, infants who are premature will often come out with some degree of respiratory distress or they're poorly feeding, and both of those things could be attributed to sepsis or it could be attributed to just their prematurity alone. And so I think we are much more generous in our antibiotic administration and we are much more generous in how often we do sepsis screens and blood cultures in infants who are premature because it's a little bit harder to tease out who is acting sick because they're premature and who is acting sick because they have a bacterial illness. In addition, premature infants have a weaker immune system compared to our term infants and so that makes us want to cover them more often. And then lastly, when you think about people who are in preterm labor, one of the reasons people go into preterm labor is because of infection. So let's say the infant went into preterm labor because there was an intraamniotic infection. That could be why, in part, the infant was delivered early. So preterm labor alone is kind of an independent risk factor for sepsis in our, in our infant population. So, so that is why we are much more generous with our antibiotic use and with our blood cultures and with our sepsis screens in the preterm population. Lastly, we'll talk about the spectrum of group B strep disease. So group B strep can cause a lot of different types of disease in the newborn, can cause GBS UTI, can cause bacteremia, can cause local infection like an endocarditis or a septic joint or an osteomyelitis. And then finally, it can also cause meningitis. And group B strep meningitis in particular is associated with a lot of morbidity. And so this is definitely something we want to keep an eye out for. Broadly, though, we divide group B strep disease into three broad categories, those being early onset disease, late onset disease, and late, late onset disease. Early onset disease is group B strep disease that occurs between zero and six days of life. And this presents kind of the way you typically would think about neonatal fever, neonatal sepsis babies to present. So typically they, they come in, they have systemic signs of illness. For example, they're apneic or having apneas, or they have respiratory distress, or the mom took the temperature at home and they had a fever. And then you work the baby up the way you would any neonatal sepsis, um, getting all of the cultures urine, blood, CSF, and then starting them on empiric therapy and empiric antibiotics. If it does turn out to be group B strep in the zero to six day of life range, or what we call early onset group B strep, only about five to 10% of those infants are going to have meningitis. And so the vast majority of them will have other forms of group B strep disease, those being things like bacteremia or UTI. Late onset disease occurs between 7 and 89 days of life, but usually occurs more in the range of 3 to 4 weeks of life. 
And this is a lot more subtle. So it can present like an occult bacteremia or it can present as like a meningitis. So meningitis occurs at a higher frequency in babies who have late onset group B strep disease. About 30% of late onset group B strep disease is a meningitis infection. But it can be other things as well. And more often we'll see the focal style of infection in late onset disease. So that'll be things like our osteomyelitis, um, septic joint, endocarditis. Those occur kind of at a higher frequency in the late onset disease population. Late, late onset disease occurs at over 90 days of life. Um, and the, that is a little bit less common. I don't see that clinically as commonly as the other two varieties. Treatment of group B strep disease is of course with ampicillin, although I will say anytime you have a baby who you're working up for infection, you just go ahead and start them on empiric coverage, right? So for our neonates, that'll just be ampicillin and gentamicin. And then for kids who are two months and older, typically we'll do something with a little bit more strep pneumo coverage such as vancomycin and ceftriaxone. But once you get your culture results back and you know you have GBS disease, you can just go ahead and narrow to either penicillin G or ampicillin. And the length of treatment of your antibiotic, typically ampicillin is what I see used most commonly, depends on what kind of group B strep disease you have. So if you have group B strep bacteremia, we typically treat that for about 10 days. If you have group B strep meningitis, it's gonna be at least two weeks or 14 days minimum, sometimes longer, depending on your clinical course. And then if you have an osteomyelitis or a septic joint attributable to group B strep disease, um, the course is typically three to four weeks. And if you have an endocarditis, you will be getting ampicillin for at least for four weeks typically. So it really, your length of treatment is gonna vary depending on the location of that group B strep infection. But the antibiotic choice doesn't vary. It's, it's always gonna be either ampicillin or penicillin G for these babies. So that is kind of our around the world in 20 minutes approach to group B strep disease. Um, this is our second to last episode of MD Notified for this season. And next week, we have a really, really wonderful guest, uh, Dr. Anthony Cooley, and he's going to be sitting down with me to talk a little bit more about physician wellness. So everybody, make sure to tune in for that. It's going to be a really awesome episode. And again, this is Christine Sukchuk. You are listening to MD Notified, and we will see you next week. Thanks for listening to MD Notified, a pediatric podcast. References to the information sourced in this episode can be found in the Quick Notes outline, which is available on mdnotified.com. The contributors to MD Notified have no financial disclosures or conflicts of interest. The views, information, or opinions expressed are solely those of the individuals in today's episode and do not represent any other organizations or its employees. The primary purpose of this podcast is to inform and educate. This podcast does not constitute medical or professional advice or services. If you are a member of the general public and have questions, 
please make an appointment with your local board-certified pediatrician.